Please take into account that this might be triggering for some people, so please do take care. The Wish Centre have already put out some guidance about really kind of basic safety planning, and that might be as simple as making sure the pathway to the door is clear, making sure that if you can, you keep about you a bit of cash and some personal documents, your keys, making sure your phone's well charged as much as you can and keeping your phone with you. So, you know, if, if you're listening and you can hear something going on at a neighbor's, obviously don't go over there yourself. I wouldn't advise this anyway in a normal situation, but call the police, get somebody out because that has helped me in the past. I guess one of the reasons why I talk so much and as loudly as I possibly can about domestic violence is, you know, we live in a world where everything can't be a priority. So you have to put your greatest resource and your greatest effort in the places where the harm is greatest. And for me, there is no greater cause of harm than domestic violence. I think I've often said that he could have told me that the grass was blue and the sky was green and I would have believed him. Whatever he said, I would have believed because, again, that's my safety mechanism. Because if I disagree, there's going to be consequences. But it's really important that it isn't your fault and it does take time to believe that. But it isn't your fault. Hello, it's Charlie Webster here. Welcome to the Undiscussable Special. I know we are all feeling a lot of uncertainty and a lack of control in our lives right now, no matter where we are in the world. We must stay at home to save lives, but this presents a whole other problem that we need to be very aware of. Not everyone's home is a safe space, and with schools closed in most parts of the world, a lot of children are left extremely vulnerable. In China, reports of domestic abuse to the local police tripled since cities got put under lockdown. In both the US and the UK, there has been an increase in calls to the domestic abuse helplines. Considering globally almost half of all gay and bi men, one in three women, one in four lesbian and bi women, one in five children, and one in six men experience domestic abuse. In the UK, more than one child in every street, that's your street, in the country, is in an unsafe and neglectful home. These are only the numbers that we know of. Just like COVID-19, not everyone is being tested to be included in the data. We're going to take a look at the unprecedented problem the coronavirus pandemic has on domestic abuse, give support and guidance of what to do as a victim, survivor, and also you, the general public. I gathered a panel of experts to help us. Samantha Billingham, a domestic abuse survivor who runs an online support group called SODA for survivors of domestic abuse, Natalie Page, the founder of the Court Said Movement for Survivor Family Justice, John Sutherland, former Chief Superintendent of the Met Police and author, and Emma James, Senior Policy Officer at Bernardo's and author of Not Just Collateral Damage Report about the impact of domestic abuse on children. I asked Samantha to start us off. I think for me, it was when I heard the word isolation. So when we were told we had to isolate, it just, as a survivor, it just filled me full of dread for all those people who are in an abusive relationship now. How much worse do you think this would have made it for you when you were in your relationship in domestic abuse? Because I know that your partner went to the extent of making sure that he even made you lose his job so he could have complete control over you. It would just be horrific for me now if I was um, with my ex-partner. 
I couldn't even have a bath on my own. I couldn't even brush my teeth on my own. He would follow me in the flat wherever I went. My phone, it was completely controlled. My phone was always on silent because when he left the flat, at least it would give me time to, to phone my mom or send a, send a text message. But with him being with me the whole time, then I wouldn't be able to do that. And also he was an alcoholic. So at the moment, we've got the pubs that have closed and shut. So for me, I would have been, well, I don't think what sort of situation I would have been in, to be honest, it would have just been horrific. Have you had many people reach out to you? I've had quite a few, yes. And there's more online support people in my group, sorry. There's, it's really active at the moment as well, because people are just frightened. They're just absolutely petrified of what can happen. Can you tell us more? about your support group and where people can find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I set my own support group up because when I left my relationship, the support I had was an eight-week awareness course of everything I'd been through. And after that eight weeks, that was it. You sort of on your own. And again, it was really isolating because my friends and family, I hadn't seen them for so long. Um, I was in a new area. So again, I was isolated. So I just decided to set up a Facebook page um, we've got over 800 members worldwide where people can come in to a safe haven and share their story. All my contact details are on my blog, which is awarenessforall.uk. So to give you that again, it's awarenessforall.uk using the numerical digit four. So it's awareness, the number four, all.uk. The current situation isn't just a concern for people living in domestic abuse, but also for after when the victim has long left their abusive partner but has children with them. The UK government has said that children are allowed to travel to visit separated parents. I asked Natalie what problems does this cause in terms of shared custody across households when dealing with an abusive ex. The problem when you are dealing with an abusive type is that anything and everything can be used against you in court and they are quite fond of repeated applications to the court and to exert control, usually through the child arrangements. So when communicating with a, with a type like that, it can become really difficult to actually get anywhere in organising anything sensible that, you know, a, a couple that had not had those abuses in the relationship would be able to successfully perhaps come to some kind of agreement. So the problem there is that, again, survivors are being asked to manage their abusers' behaviour. Now, during this crisis, obviously that means that one parent might be fearful sending their children. They'll be fearful anyway if they're court-ordered to send children to an abusive parent. But this is where we're at. So now you add the COVID-19 crisis and you've got an extra layer on top of risk. So for some, it's just too much. So what do you do if you are in this situation? Is there any guidance or legal protection? I asked Natalie. The only guidance with regards to this problem has actually come from the judiciary, in which case it is basically that if you can't come to an agreement, then you are going to have to come back to court. So obviously with the remote hearings, then... You know, we're wondering what that's going to look like, how justice is going to be delivered, how secure those remote hearings are. There's so many variables to this. It's impossible 
to say, but we do have some quite grave reservations about the security levels for remote hearings, for example. Also, obviously, when parents can't agree and they are then required to go back to court to get an order varied, we don't know how long this crisis is going to go on for. If it is that it's for a fairly short period of time and that these restrictive measures can be lifted, then I think the impacts on survivors would be a little bit less with regards to how the courts would look at it. If this goes on for quite a long while and families are still needing to isolate, they really are increasing their risks of um, ending up with a parental alienation case potentially or it forming part of a parental alienation case. So it really depends on that. And I think that the government, I think they're open to all the issues surrounding isolation and domestic abuse. But where the understanding tends to stop is when that is actually happening through the family courts, because there's so much silence around it. So the government have an idea, obviously, that that domestic abuse is going to spike. They've been warned enough times by um, campaigners everywhere and organisations everywhere. However, there's it's quite quiet on the issue of well, what happens when those abuses are actually perpetrated through child arrangements, which are allowed. And, you know, most people don't even realise that that happens. What would her advice be to people in this situation based on the current system? So it's really about weighing up the risk and trying to come to some form of agreement between yourselves, if you can. In the absence of direct contact, if in your order, your order says that it's direct or visiting unsupervised contacts, that can be substituted temporarily with Skype or FaceTime calls or regular phone calls, and just generally keeping in touch on social media in the interim. But obviously, this depends on how long this is actually going to go on. Because, you know, it depends whether it goes into uh, weeks or months. And and as yet, we don't know. So I think keep an idea that you might be doing this for the long haul. In in that case, I would always try and seek to to come to some kind of harmonious agreement if possible. If there really is no way of agreeing and you have to seek advice in first instance always seek some legal advice if you can access it and make sure that you've gathered evidence in writing of you endeavouring to make agreements and co-parent effectively so that the court can see that that process you know how that process has, has broken down and I think they would find it then easier to intervene and make agreements as well. However, what I would say at the moment with the justice system in disarray with domestic abuse already, that if there's any way that you can avoid it safely, I would personally avoid right now. John, what unique challenge does the coronavirus mean for police forces all over the world? I mean, you've served for more than 25 years in the Met Police and authored books, including a new one where you've got a whole chapter on domestic abuse. Well, I I think, as you've heard me say before, domestic violence is a disease of pandemic proportions. And and I say that in an age of coronavirus, it's terrorism on an epic scale. It is the single greatest cause of harm in society. Uh, And of course, it doesn't stop in a time of national crisis. And as your other guests are 
are suggesting actually there's a very real danger that it increases, that the risks to survivors increase and the risks to their children increase. In terms of coronavirus specifically, we're still in the earliest days. We've got a very long stretch ahead of us. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. You know, speaking purely personally, based on my professional experience over the years, I'm enormously concerned about domestic violence survivors and their children. It's impossible at the best of times, but to find yourself essentially restricted within four walls with the person who's responsible for the particular living hell that you're going through, I mean, it's just beyond comprehension. But I know that the police will do the best that they can. I know that often uh, survivors will find it difficult to contact the police because they are mistrustful of authority, because they've been let down by the police in the past, because they don't know whether or not they're going to be believed, because they're concerned that social services will get involved, that their housing will be at risk. There are a thousand completely understandable reasons why victims might be reluctant to contact the police. But but I hope and I pray that they do, because unless the police know about it, there's nothing they can do about it. It's interesting that you said, because I read the chapter in your book and um, I've got it with me. And it, it, I mean, it was really powerful because even on yourself, you said, I'm going to quote it actually, it says, the first murder scene I went to was a domestic I can still see all of it, the stairs that doubled back on themselves, the worn 1970s carpet, the grubby walls, the two doors leading off the corridor into the kitchen and the living room, and her name was Marion. And then you go on to say the second murder I went to was at the top of Brixton Hill was a domestic too. It was another young woman. Her name was Jane, and you helped carry her to the ambulance. And you said in the book, I've carried the memories of these two women these two scenes with me for more than 20 years and I will carry them with me for the rest of my life. You talked about that you're concerned, you know, now that the coronavirus has hit, but you were concerned anyway. I know from um, some of the work that you've done. Can you tell us maybe for victims out there, what should a victim expect from the police? Well, first and foremost, they should expect for their circumstances to be treated as an emergency. I've often said to my colleagues in the past that an effective response to domestic violence is an effective means of preventing murder. You know, taking domestic violence seriously is about saving lives. And for a police officer, there is no greater duty or responsibility than to do that and to save people's lives. So absolutely, they should expect for it to be treated as an emergency. Also, they should expect to be treated with enormous humanity and understanding and they should expect that everything they tell the police will be taken seriously. But Emma, what are your concerns around children? I mean, I've read the report, I've been involved in some of the work that you've done with Bernardo's of the the hidden impact of living with domestic abuse. I'm, I'm myself a child survivor. What are your concerns around vulnerable children and the fact that now they don't even have a safe space or school to go to. Nardos were incredibly concerned about children and young people who live in a household where there's domestic abuse. As you said, school is often respite and support for these children and young people, and now they are isolated in a house where the unthinkable is happening. And we're really, really worried about them, and we really think schools 
have more of a responsibility to keep in communication with these children and young people. Often they know who they are. They may not be the ones necessarily with social workers or care plans, but they could be sending out information to directly to children and young people via Google Classroom in the same way that they're sending out homework to them and classwork. They could send out phone numbers and helplines and email addresses where they can get further support. But yeah, we are we are very worried because we know, as everybody has alluded to, that the incidents of domestic abuse are going to rise in this environment. So at the moment, are schools mainly contacting the parents? Yes, exactly. So uh, they'll be contacting their young people with work to do um, and they'll be contacting parents with more official sort of communications but they have ample avenues to contact young people directly to offer their support and also social media sites have a responsibility to promote helplines and support as well in the same way that we keep seeing messages about stay inside and stay in your safe space and keep safe this isn't safe for children and young people to stay at home. So we really need social media companies and the government really to emphasise to communities in the same way communities are coming together to support vulnerable elderly people, communities and neighbours, teachers, friends should be aware that if they know someone who may be extremely vulnerable due to domestic abuse, could they contact them? text message them, let them know that there is someone there they can talk to if they need to? I think it's really, 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 really difficult because one of the most controlled things in an abusive relationship is a mobile phone. So obviously we encourage people to speak out to someone to report it. And as John said, you know, you don't know that we're going through it unless we call you. So for me, it took several incidents before I even found the courage to phone. And then I had to go into a completely different room to where my ex-partner was. And I think with the lockdown and things like that, it's going to be really difficult for children and victims of domestic abuse to be able to do that. So that is one of my huge concerns, I guess, because mm. they're going to be controlled even more than they are already being controlled. So for me, I, I just really, really, it really concerns me. I, I don't know how to put it into words, really how serious this really is for people for vulnerable people in this situation because they will be controlled even more so than in normal circumstances if that makes sense even things like writing a diary we don't know if there's a safe place for that person to leave that diary without the abuser finding it so there are things that they can do to keep safe but under these circumstances are they really going to be safe Many young children in situations like this tend to seek the outside in search of acceptance and love. But I wondered, with staying at home, would children in domestic abuse and neglect look for comfort through online life? Problems with family, lack of parental involvement in online activities and social isolation are all factors that are likely to increase a young person's vulnerability to online sexual victimisation. So surely now this is leaving kids even more exposed. Yes, so... As you uh, talked about earlier, my report, Collateral Damage, discussed what issues children, young people 
may find themselves in if they've lived in a household where there's domestic abuse. So they're more likely to be uh, sexually exploited or to become youth offenders or to have mental health issues. And we are really concerned that actually children and young people spending all day at home, isolated from their peers, they're more likely to go online. And it's really sort of a ripe space for perpetrators to engage with young people and especially young people who are escaping trauma within their own homes. So if there's somebody who seems to be understanding that they're chatting to online who who isn't who they say they are, then there's a real risk that online abuse, online exploitation, even criminal exploitation online is going to go up and, and children are going to be much more vulnerable. And the mental health issues and child development that is affected by living with domestic abuse, being in the same household day in, day out with the abuser is going to have a, a catastrophic effect on children and young people. And I really am very concerned that we are looking at a, a generation of children and young people that are going to have significant consequences because of this coronavirus. John, do you have any thoughts about how the police can monitor um, online safety in terms of grooming and abuse? So the police have an existing um, child exploitation team who specialise in online exploitation. So that expertise is already in existence. I, I think the greatest challenge for policing is one of scale. When the National Crime Agency published their annual strategic assessment document, they call it, it's their assessment of the risks facing the country. When they published the most recent one about nine months ago, they made the point that that on the dark web, there are something like 2.88 million separate accounts that are hosting the most extreme forms of child abuse and exploitation. Wow. Uh, I mean, 2.88 million. I where do you even begin with that yeah. number? So the expertise exists within policing and certainly the will exists within policing. The challenge is one of volume and scale. And of course, at the moment, and, you know, every police officer accepts this as fact and you won't hear any of them complain, but they're being pulled in a thousand different directions. Everybody wants something from them. And, and there are 20,000 fewer of them than there were 10 years ago. Uh, I guess one of the reasons why I talk so much and as loudly as I possibly can about domestic violence is, you know, we live in a world where everything can't be a priority. So you have to put your greatest resource and your greatest effort in the places where the harm is greatest. And for me, there is no greater cause of harm than domestic violence. John, can you explain why that is? And, and maybe how it links to other crimes that you've seen? Yeah, well, uh, gosh, the, the uh, other speakers today are every bit, if not more, qualified to talk about this than I am. Uh, but for me, for example, there's a very interesting connection between domestic violence and youth violence. That's probably the other subject that I've spent most of my professional life dealing with and feeling passionately about. I've stood in far too many of the haunted places where young men have lost their lives. And in almost every case that I've had dealings with, the perpetrators of serious youth violence are children who have grown up in homes where they were themselves the victims of violence or the witnesses to violence. Now, I, I need to be clear what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that every child who grows up in a violent home goes on to become violent themselves. 
the reality is much more hopeful than that. But when you look at it the other way around, when you look at those children and young people who have already become involved in violence, so often, in almost 100% of cases in my experience, they grew up in homes where they were victims of it themselves. There is a sense in which violence begets violence. You know, domestic mm-hmm. violence has the capacity to be passed on from one generation to the next, causing devastation to every single person it comes into contact with. Oh, please. I mean, I know, I know you talk about this and, and I couldn't agree with you more about the cycle of abuse. Are police aware of this, I, I presume? And if so, are they tackling it with that view? I, I don't think the policing response to domestic violence is anywhere close to perfect, anywhere close to ideal. Uh, I do think that it's a whole lot better than it used to be. I joined the police in the early 90s. Um, And when I started, domestic violence was still regarded by an awful lot of people in society, not just in policing, as as a private matter, as something that happened behind closed doors that was best left well alone. And if I'm honest, at the start of my career, the thing that I learned from my colleagues and to some extent from first-hand experience, the thing that I learned was that domestic violence was grief. And I'm being really honest here. The, 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 The phrase was just another griefy domestic. And I didn't understand. It took years and years of policing experience for me to learn and understand the truth. And I think policing's moved a long way since the early 90s. I I think we recognize now that you deal with domestic violence and you save lives. You deal with domestic violence and you reduce the number of murders. You deal with domestic violence and you reduce the overall volume of violent crime in this country. You deal with domestic violence and you protect and safeguard some of the most vulnerable people in society. And you know, it's been said before that one of the measures of a society is the regard that we have for our most vulnerable members. And I would say that the victims and survivors of domestic violence and their children who are themselves survivors are some of the most vulnerable of all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree completely. And um, just finally with you, John, what advice would you give anybody at the moment that's relating to this now during the coronavirus to do in terms of police? Is to call the police. And that's not the immediate solution to everything, but it's the beginning of the solution. I actually spoke with Emma and her team in Parliament only weeks ago calling for the government to recognise the impact domestic abuse has on children and for the Domestic Abuse Bill and Children's Act clearly to reflect this. Which, by the way, it doesn't. Something I just can't get my head around is why children are still seen as witnesses and not victims. something that we emphasise time and time again, that children, it's not just about seeing or hearing domestic abuse. Even if a child is in another room, the impact um, on that child, they are a victim. It will affect their childhood, it will affect their futures and their outcomes, and they are victims in their own right. And it's really, really crucial that the domestic abuse bill, that authorities, that schools understand that they're not just passive bystanders, they are there, it is affecting them, it is changing how they see things, changing their emotions, and they are victims in their own right, as I said. 
Can Thanks, I just come in on that point, Charlie? Yeah, John, please. Uh, I, I mean, I, I just couldn't agree more with Emma. I mean, I would go so far as to say that, that and, and, you know, the majority of perpetrators are men. So let's talk about a man. Where a man uh, is guilty of assaulting his wife or partner in the presence or hearing of a child, he should automatically be guilty of an assault on that child as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Natalie, I, I can see that you're nodding. Can you maybe talk around that? Because I know that you see time and time again that the children are dragged through the family court system and children are allowed to spend time or parents allowed access, even though they've been abusive and abused that child to their kid. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's really commonplace. In fact, it's more common that they're that that doesn't you know you know it's less common that that doesn't happen it's pretty much a given that on going through the court system even if you manage to get domestic abuse found as fact at trial that contact will still go ahead and it will likely be unsupervised also in response to allegations of abuse what happens usually is that it is seen as an alienation tactic to frustrate contact. So what will happen is it, usually in those situations, they will transfer the residence of the child to the abusive parent, we shall say. And so what we're seeing is in the justice system, there, there might be some really good responses and there's some amazing work going on within police, within lots of other different agencies. However, where the buck stops with all of this is our family justice system. So unless that's sorted out, none of this will be joined up at all. We've already seen this week now parents um, falling foul of the system uh, when self-isolating and the abusive ex-partner has immediately gone to court claiming alienation when the parent was acting protectively due to the current risk factors. There's often medical risk there. But obviously, if you withhold contact, even with an heir, you are liable for enforcement proceedings. And there's still very little guidance about high-risk families being effectively told to ignore the very clear government advice because they will, face, they will actually be facing enforcement otherwise. Um, we've already seen children not returned to their primary carers by known domestic abusers following contact as they then during the contact uh, will then declare that they are isolating and will keep hold of the children so there's been various situations but of course in the middle of all of that is a child that is now stuck with an abuser that shouldn't be stuck with an abuser and it just shouldn't be happening so it's extremely worrying extremely worrying time can I just follow on from John and Natalie there there a second? As you know, obviously, Charlie, but many people might not, I left my abusive relationship when my ex-partner split my lip open whilst I was holding my 10-month-old daughter. But at that point, I knew I had to leave for her sake. That happened on a Friday night. On the Monday, I'd got her in the pram, took her to the police station, made my last statement, uh, didn't withdraw it, anything like that, which took a lot of courage to do because throughout our relationship, he told me I was a crap mom, he'd get her taken off me, the police aren't going to believe me, you know. So I did that 
And then about three months later, I had a letter from his solicitor instructing me to go through the family court. So at this point, I'm still vulnerable. I'm still petrified. I'm still looking over my shoulder because everything he's always told me is still embedded in my brain, basically. Then I have to go to court. I'm the one who's got to take a psychological test. I'm the one who's got to take drug tests and alcohol tests to prove that I'm a good mom. When all that I did really was protect my 10-month-old daughter by trying to take her out of that situation, yet he seemed to be getting the support and I didn't. And he took me through the family court for a number of years. He instructed three different solicitors and then in time he just didn't turn up to any of the appointments he just couldn't be bothered really um but that is so stressful for somebody who has been through all that trauma left you know because you're told why don't you just leave and all the rest of it and then to to go through family court is just really really overwhelming and it's just so difficult to know if you're doing the right thing or not because it seems to be that the non-abusive parent seems to be the one in the wrong when they've done nothing wrong. So it's it's just really difficult. And I'm one of the lucky ones because it was thrown out of court and my ex-partner has now passed away. So I don't have to go through that. But as soon as I heard about this coronavirus and the word isolation, everything for me personally has just come flooding back. So the coronavirus for me as a survivor has been a huge trigger for everything that I went through about 14 years ago. So even though you have come out of it out the other side, it doesn't always go away, it's still a part of you. So for techniques to try and stay safe and things like that can be really, really difficult. And it can be difficult to focus on yourself as well, because in that traumatic experience, you've done the exact opposite. You've walked on eggshells for so long. You've been on autopilot looking after somebody else and doing what they want you to do, because by doing that, you're keeping yourself safe if that makes sense. So you do whatever they say, because if you don't, there'll be consequences. So to try and stay safe now is things as simple as having a hot bubble bath, putting your favourite song on, lighting a candle. I've got a cat, which you probably know if you follow me on social media, it's spending time. So it's all the little things that we, that mean so much to us because we could never do those things before. So it's just about the little things taking one day at a time And the most important thing is for people in that situation to remember it's not their fault. Sam, it was just brilliant what you just said. I want you to expand on that, if it's okay. What would you say to people that, I know you just said it's it's not their fault, but that thought and were told things like your ex partner did that you're stupid, you're rubbish, it's all your fault. How, what would you say to maybe reassure people out there to help them realise that that's their, that's a way of manipulation to try and, you know, it's a, a tactic of a narcissist of a perpetrator to make the person so small and strip them of their identity. When I share my story, I think I've said it on the podcast as well, My abuse started when I was isolated. It wasn't when he hit me the first time. It was when he isolated me, when I couldn't see my friends and family, and he took me away from my support network. And then from that moment on, he moulded me into a person that was easy enough for him to control and for him to abuse. And you often get other people, friends, family, who think they're charming. Oh, he's lovely. And then with everything he said and he's brainwashed you into believing that no one's going to believe you and all that 
you do believe that and you do believe it for a very, very long time. I think I've often said that he could have told me that the grass was blue and the sky was green and I would have believed him. Whatever he said, I would have believed because, again, that's my safety mechanism. Because if I disagree, there's going to be consequences. But it's really important that it isn't your fault. And it does take time to, to believe that. But it isn't your fault. And I often say if you take away the control that an abuser has over you, if you take the control away from them, they are nothing. They, you know, they aren't anybody. My ex-partner, um, take take his abuse away and his power and control over me. He didn't have a job. He didn't have any friends. People pretended to be his friend because they were frightened of him. But once you're in that situation, you don't see it as that. It's when you're out of it that things kind of fall into place if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, it makes perfect sense. And you've summed up exactly, I think everybody be, will agree, what domestic abuse is really, because it is about control. It is about the fact that they get into your head. And I'm sure Natalie will agree that that's also how they then manage to get control even once they've um, separated. You did mention uh, triggers as well. And I just want to bring somebody in on the line finally, Tanya Hudson, who's a great friend of mine. She's a child survivor and actually is over in Canada and helped me put together the season one of Undiscussable. Tanya, we've talked so many times about triggers and just going on what Sam just said. I think we'll both relate to the fact that it doesn't leave you. And something I always say is that, you know, I think for so long I ran um, from my past and didn't address it. And it always lived in my head. And those words that were said to me that, you know, I was stupid, I was ugly, I wasn't worthless, you know, stayed in my head and actually became how I treated myself for a long time. And then situations like this, um, in terms of being more isolated, having not as much contact can really provoke anxiety as well as the uncertainty. Tanya, what would you say maybe are some coping mechanisms that you're using or you've been using in the past? Hi everybody, thank you all so much for joining us as well. I just wanted to say I've heard so much about you all and wonderful to actually be speaking to you guys. Isolation to me is having to stay at home because my dad might call. And for those of you that don't know or haven't heard the podcast, my dad was in prison, but he was also deported because he wasn't a citizen of the country where I grew up in South Africa. And so there were times when he was not around, but as any survivor will know, that doesn't mean that the control of the person who is abusing you doesn't still have that control, regardless of whether they're in the home or not. And so most of my childhood was spent at home because what if my dad called and if my mom wasn't home well, this was in the days before mobile phones. Um, so if my mom wasn't home and couldn't answer the call, then, you know, she'd just be terrified of, of what could happen. So you're very right. Isolation is very much a trigger for me. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to do that, do it to myself anyway, because it's just what I know. It's what I've, what I grew up with. So not being told that you have to self-isolate, I still kind of find myself doing it <laughs> anyway. But um, I think, what has helped me so much is making sure that I'm monitoring the type of input that is coming at me. So monitoring my use of social media and and where I get my news. So personally, I have a very strict 
filter of, of my social media. I, I don't go onto Facebook very much. I try not to go down these little rabbit holes. I try and stay away from the news as much as possible. And I try and go to the source for information. Um, also getting sleep. So making sure that you are trying to stick to routine and that you are sleeping is really, really important to your mental well-being because on very little sleep, you're not able to function properly. You're not able to think straight. So that has been my number one safeguard is making sure that I am getting that sleep. And then something that I wanted to say just in response to what John was saying is I think you know, when people hear that you need to self-isolate and you can only do very specific things and, you know, only things that are an emergency, if you are in a dangerous position, call the police. It is an emergency. Reach out. And the other thing that I would say is if you hear something, so say, for example, you are, you know, we're all in close quarters now. So if you do hear something, report it, call the police, say something, they're not going to stop coming out to you. So, you know, if you can hear something going on at a neighbor's, obviously don't go over there yourself. I wouldn't advise this anyway in a normal situation, but call the police, get somebody out because that has helped me in the past. People have noticed and recognized and they've called the police on my family before. And while that was, you know, not a very nice situation to be in, it ultimately was a positive one. So please do call the police. Yeah, just to go off what you said there, Tanya, thank you. That was really helpful. The police wasn't called in my situation and I needed the police many a time to be called and so did the rest of my family. And just on um, triggers, Tanya, yours, like we're really good friends, but we're almost slightly different personalities in a, in a sense and use different coping mechanisms. So just something um, for maybe people can relate to that maybe my personality type is I always struggled with not being in control and because for as a child I was never in control at all of my situation and then as an adult all I did was try and seek control and whether that be to be independent to make sure that I didn't need anybody in terms of finances and in terms of just everything even with my exercise I think sometimes I went overboard with exercise to try and um, have that control and sometimes that became uh, very harmful to me um, it became almost a self-harm mechanism. So I think people that um, maybe need that, like I definitely need exercise. And I know that in the UK anyway, I know that you're in Canada, Tanya, and um, you are allowed to go and exercise. Try and still do that if that's your coping mechanism, obviously safely. But also for people that do find that control difficult. I think when I'm out of control, it makes me super duper anxious. And um, at the moment, I'm self-employed, so my work's completely disappeared. That makes me really anxious because it, it then triggers so much about survival with me. And I think for a long time, even though I was out of the family situation, I still was constantly pushing myself to survive and didn't really realize I had survived. So I think try and find something that you can control, even if it's the smallest things, a bit like uh, what Sam was saying, go and have a hot bubble bath, give yourself a lot of self-love. It's something that I really struggled with for a long time, never mind the coronavirus, um, was about loving yourself. And I know we hear that around a lot of the time, but it's really important in terms of self-care because if you show that yourself that you're worth it, you'll start to put those boundaries up to other people to show them that you're worth it. So just control things that you can control. That really, really does help me, giving myself tasks 
and finding little things, whether it's what time I get up in the morning, whether I have a shower, even though my bow is broken, so I can't have a shower right now. <laughs> or, yeah, what time I go to bed, what I eat, things like that are really, really helpful and just giving myself a bit of structure because I, I struggle uh, with that. John came in with some final thoughts his end. Just an observation, really, uh, because I think there is still a, a need for a fundamental change in society's attitudes towards domestic violence. You know, we, we are a group of people, I, I, I hope in my case, who get it. Uh, I know in your cases that you do. But there are still so many who don't. Uh, and the way I've tried to articulate it in the past is, uh, you know, when, I, when I'm, I'm, I've just turned 50, when I was a child, in my younger years, um, people smoked in pubs and restaurants and none of us wore seatbelts in cars and nobody had ever heard of a thing called climate change and men battered women behind closed doors. Now that I'm 50, nobody smokes in pubs and restaurants and in fact my children think that anyone who smokes is an idiot. And the first thing that we do when we get in the car is put our seatbelts on uh, and the people denying climate change are the ones who are missing the point and yet there's still one thing from my childhood that is still to change and it's long past time it is long past time and a pandemic lockdown just exacerbates the already epidemic of domestic abuse so thank you so much sorry i've took up quite a lot of your time thank you so much thank you so thank much, you. much. I said goodbye to our expert panel and called up one other person I really wanted to speak to, the CEO of Safe Lives, Suzanne Jacob, OBE, a charity dedicated to ending domestic abuse who was part of the lobbying effort in the UK to get domestic abuse workers recognised as key workers during this time. They weren't, but thankfully are now. I wanted to know what advice Safe Lives are giving to victims of domestic abuse and the general public's role in looking out for the most vulnerable during this completely unknown situation that we're all in. The first thing we really want to stress to people is that they're not alone. It must feel to a lot of people at the moment in all sorts of different situations like they're really on their own. And it's really crucial that people don't feel like that, like they still feel like there are different services and networks that they can access. Those are different and they're working under different arrangements than normal, but it doesn't mean that it's all gone. So I know you've been talking to John Sutherland about the police response, and it is really important that people know they should still absolutely dial 999 in a crisis. The police are there for public protection. And even though they've got various things going on at the moment, that doesn't mean that they're deprioritizing domestic abuse. I've been on calls with Louisa Rolfe, who's the national lead, been in calls with the College of Policing, with leads in the Met Police and forces from all around the UK. They've all consistently said they want to be clear that this is such a high priority for them. You know, domestic abuse is like 14% of all calls to the police just on a normal day. And actually, in some ways, some forces are maybe expecting there might be a kind of reduction in some crime types during this period because people are just out and about less but they're expecting to see a rise in domestic abuse. So even though there are pressures on the police, do call 999 if you need to. In terms of recourse to other services, we know that specialist services are gonna to have to work under different conditions. They're gonna be doing more online work. They're gonna be doing more work through the national helplines and local helplines. 
they're doing absolutely everything they can to make sure those are all available to people. As I say, they might look and feel a bit different, but the services are trying their absolute best to maintain capacity for that. And then I guess at the really personal level, it's also about if you can't connect to those services, if you don't want to or can't speak to the police for some reason, what are your other avenues for contact with the outside world or indeed to kind of safety plan inside the home? terms of the rest of the outside world, it might be still in contact with your employer. And actually, we've had quite a lot of the big employers get into contact with us and say, oh, my God, we know this is going to be an issue. What can we do? Which is fantastic. It's really, really good that they're reaching out and asking those questions, because I think even just, you know, 12, 24 months ago, maybe they wouldn't have even thought of that as an issue. So that is really positive. So do use your employer and the kind of methods of connection to that employer as a kind of method of staying in touch also financial institutions again we've had a number of the big banks get in touch with us to say we know this is going to be a huge time of pressure for people what should we be doing so we've been advising some of them and you know if your abuser is there in the home with you it's probably legitimate for you to legitimate in inverted commas for you to be calling your bank or other financial services just because we're all going through a load of financial change at the moment so it might be that you can have conversations with them discreetly and then in terms of other services, obviously, we're all kind of still able to visit the shops for food, uh, the post office, some of the kind of critical services and so on. And Rachel Williams has done a little podcast for us talking about some of the methods you might have to just maybe scribble something on the bottom of shopping list to pass across the counter to somebody. Or, you know, if you really, really need to get an emergency message out, there are still methods for you to do that on those limited occasions you can go out. And then in terms of safety planning at home, We'll be issuing some new material about this tomorrow, probably. So a number of specialist services at a local level have done that already. So the WISH Centre have already put out some guidance about really kind of basic safety planning. And that might be as simple as making sure the pathway to the door is clear, making sure that if you can, you keep about you a bit of cash and some personal documents, your keys, making sure your phone's well charged, as much as you can and keeping your phone with you you know these are quite small simple things but actually they could really matter to somebody in an urgent situation so we'll be building on that with colleagues in what we put out tomorrow that'll be informed by dozens of local specialist services around the UK who wanted to feed into that and where can people find that so that will go up on our website we've got a dedicated page on the safe lives website so if you go to www.safelives.org.uk There's a very specific page. It's got a big banner on our front page. So if you just go there, all about coronavirus, COVID-19, all of the guidance, we're just trying to put it all in one place. And as well as guidance, we're also trying to collect together just expressions of support for people as well, because that feels really important that we don't lose sight of, you know, in all the emergency planning and stuff, that we don't lose sight of the fact that people should feel emotionally supported And like they're not by themselves in this situation. There are other survivors, hundreds of thousands of other survivors out there who are thinking of them. We're thinking of them. You know, there will be an end to this period. We'll come out the other side. So that will be all on the same place as well on the website. Yeah, there's so many of us out there that knows how it feels. And and like you said, that are thinking of people and, and really do understand and know those feelings and thoughts and that they're not alone just a few things to pick up on from what you just said what should an an employer do then if somebody does come to them that needs help 
The first thing an employer should definitely do is keep a way of structured contact with any team member. So we'd expect any good employee to be doing that anyway in this situation, that they don't just, even if people are, you know, this kind of word furloughing that people have come up with, even if people aren't working, the employer should still be in touch with somebody on a regular basis to check in, see how they're doing, keep them updated. If somebody then uses that as a channel to disclose something or to try and get a message out, then those employers can, of course, call the police if they think it's something really urgent, or they can be in touch with specialist services. Many of them are now using the Bright Sky app to find what those local specialist services are and kind of locate those really quickly. And they might have recourse to their employee assistance line if they're an organization that's got something like that. Um, and they're often completely free, confidential, and they offer kind of ongoing counseling support as well as initial safety planning and so on. So I think sometimes employers are a bit nervous about doing the wrong thing, but they are potentially going to play a really important role during this period. Sorry, I guess the other set of people I should have mentioned really in my earlier list was neighbours. This is a time for all of us to feel like a community as much as possible. And everyone's putting notes under each other's door saying, can I go get your grocery shopping? But we should also be thinking about, are we hearing something next door or are we picking up on something next door that that's worrying to us? And if so, what can we do about that? How can we be helpful? And on that, what should neighbours do and what should members of the public do? Say if there is a note pushed under uh, when they're trying to pay for their groceries or a note pushed under their door where there is somebody in need of help or they do hear something because... I think attitudes have changed. However, there is still a tendency to shy away from interfering in a domestic. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. You know, we we saw, didn't we, last year when there was an incident at a very public person's house that there was a kind of backlash about why did they call the police and it's none of their business. And I think those are really, really unhelpful messages. It's so important that if you feel that somebody is at risk, you do call the police. That is every good citizen's right and duty to make sure that you know we're, we're kind of acting as good citizens. Also thinking about how can you make it known that there's somebody next door who can hear what's going on, you know, just so it's clear to the abuser as well as to the victim that that's not going unnoticed, that it's, it's a public issue. It's not a private issue going on behind closed doors just because mm-hmm. they can't be seen. But we will be covering a little bit of that in more detail in the guidance we put out tomorrow. Okay. And what in terms, I know you published in the guidance, which is fantastic, and we'll take a look at that. What in terms of the government are you calling on that they can do to help in any way possible to improve the protection of victims in domestic abuse and survivors that maybe have left Mm -hmm. their partner and that are still being coercively controlled through children? So there are at least four bits of this, but there will be more, I'm sure, kind of coming over time. First is we do think that the government should be running some kind of public information campaign about domestic abuse specifically and child abuse. That, you know, home is not a safe place for everybody and it would be good for them to be for them to be acknowledging that and to acknowledge that, you know, whilst there's pressure on resources, it is still an absolute priority for this country that people are safe in their own homes. So that public awareness piece is something that, of course, we as charities will try to do, but we don't have the big platform of the government to kind of reach out uh, as much as they can. 
there's definitely something around the urgent funding needed for those frontline charities um, and specialists around domestic abuse, child abuse, um, making sure that they can just pay the bills while they're getting on and doing the work. Because of course, some organizations, in fact, many organizations are facing both a big drop in income because they've got to close their charity shops or they can't do their training or whatever at the same time that they've got to kind of keep their staff deployed and kind of keep out there. But the um, thing is, they were struggling in the first place. It wasn't like the charities or those situations were flush anyway before going into this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's particularly true for some of the smaller charities. So charities that specifically work, for example, with BME women or LGBT plus communities, really, really under-resourced at the best of times, probably don't have any reserves of any kind of significant level. So they're immediately going to be very vulnerable to kind of financial collapse in a situation like this so they've got to have some support thank Welcome. you so really glad to take part in it it's nice thank you. you as i said goodbye to suzanne she was hopeful about the future if we can get the government to start talking about this publicly what it shows is that we can talk about things people don't want to talk about that we can acknowledge things people don't want to acknowledge and we know that domestic abuse and wider kind of abuse and exploitation thrives on secrecy and being full of shame and stigma for the victim. You know, if we can change some of that, even in a small way through this process, that would have been a really big win, actually. Thanks so much for listening. Please, if you can help us share this, so we not only offer support, advice and reassurance, educate globally why we need to end domestic abuse for both families and societies to thrive and as i've said many times before in my talks about children brought up in abusive households it installs a terror that stays with you a hypervigilance that never lets you rest or feel safe and a questioning self-esteem that constantly reminds you that you aren't good enough because that is not only what you were told but what you were shown as a child If we keep leaving young people as an afterthought, we only have ourselves to blame if these children become young adults that express their pain and need for help in behaviours that we don't like. As John says in his new book, Crossing the Line, in chapter 4 on knife crime, at the heart of everything is trauma. The greater a child's exposure to trauma in the household, the greater their risk to their physical, emotional and mental health. They are seven times more likely to be involved in recent violence. 11 times more likely to be incarcerated and 11 times more likely to use heroin or crack. Please do get in contact with us on email undiscussablepodcast at gmail.com. We're going to share stories, give expert advice and coping mechanisms for victims and survivors of domestic abuse and people struggling with their mental health. We would love you to send us a voice note if you feel safe to, share with us what you're going through or ask a question. We would like to be able to use your note in our recording but only with your permission. We will also do a select amount of Skype sessions and bring experts on board. We will record this so that it can help others, but again, only with your permission. And we can also hide or change names. Please, I want to reiterate that we will not use anything publicly without your permission. Do get in touch, send your voice notes, questions that you'd like answered, and if you would like us to Skype you, the address again, undiscussablepodcast at gmail.com or through my contact form as well, which is on my website, charliewebster.com. We will do our best to get back to everyone that contacts us. And don't hesitate to reach out to Samantha Billingham, awarenessforall.uk, and Natalie Page, 
thecourtset at gmail.com and the Safe Lives resource, safelives.org.uk, to help support you through this time. Undiscussable is an independent production hosted and produced by me, Charlie Webster, with production and editorial support by Tanya Hudson. A big thank you to our panel of experts, Sam, Natalie, John, Emma and Suzanne. Please head to charliewebster.com forward slash undiscussable for more details, support and please, please share so we can help as many people as possible and raise much needed awareness. <laughs>